and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast, Coronavirus Edition. I am your host, Mike Robertson, and today we are going to be talking about the four biggest mistakes that I've made in programming and coaching. Now, I don't know about you, but it was really hard for me to whittle this down to only four, considering I feel like I made just about every mistake in the book when it comes to writing programs, coaching my clients, and all of the nuance that goes in between those those two things. So, you know, when I look back over my 20-ish years in the fitness industry, you know, I go back and I really got serious about coaching people during that internship at Ball State. It was the summer of 2000. You know, I'd loosely train people like friends in the weight room and I'd kind of messed around and dabbled in that realm, but it wasn't until that summer that I got really serious about coaching. But over that 20-year time period, man, I have seen every nook and every cranny of the fitness industry. I mean, when I look back, we did the rehab thing. I did the personal training thing. I did strength and conditioning or physical preparation, whatever you want to call it. So I've done everything on that continuum. I've also done everything from a business perspective as well. I've done one-on-one. I've done semi-private. I've done large group. So I'd like to think that You know, I've got this broad range of experiences that has allowed me to be a great generalist. It's afforded me the ability over time to take that generalism and become very specific in certain niches and certain areas. But ultimately, it's given me great perspective. And, you know, going back and I could go for, I could probably give you a hundred. Like if I really got down to nuance and nitty gritty details, I could probably give you at least a hundred ways that I've screwed up or common themes. But if I have to settle on three or four, these are the ones that really stick out. And keep in mind, if you want to do something like this for yourself and you want to really look back and reflect on, okay, what areas or, or what mistakes have you made over the years? I think each one is really reflective on where I was in my career and what my thought process was at that point in time. And I think too often we get too focused on one specific area or one specific thing that we get caught up in. And maybe it's strength or conditioning or flexibility or mobility. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, what ends up happening is we get so caught up in this one focal area and without knowing it, there's this creep over time and it starts to take over our sessions or it starts to take over our coaching. So without any further ado, let's jump into the four biggest mistakes that I've made in programming and coaching. All right, so the first big mistake that I made, and this happened early in my career, was this idea of using too many resets or too many correctives in my programs. Now, if you go in the Wayback Machine, we go back to 2004, 2005, Eric Cressy and myself, I think, are really coming onto the scene. We're writing a lot of stuff for T-Nation, and that's when we collaborated, and we wrote this article called Neanderthal No More. And this was like a five-part series. I still don't know how we got TC and Tim Patterson to run this entire article series for us, but the first two or three articles were all about common postural flaws, how to manage them, and we wrote an entire program on how to help people get strong, get jacked, but also move very well. So going back to that time frame, like this is what I was known for. I was known for correctives, for mobility training, and then later on for resets. But when things tend to take over or we look at them too strongly or emphasize them too much, it can have a negative impact on our programs or on the training effect that we're looking to get. So 
You know, a couple examples here. I had a guy that came into iFast when we first opened 2008, 2009. This guy was jacked and he wanted to go into the Secret Service School. Now, you got to be able to do a lot of stuff to do that, right? You've got to be fit, strong, and most importantly, healthy. And that was this guy's Achilles heel. I mean, every day he came in the gym, we had a different issue. One day it would be his knee. The next day it would be his shoulder. The next day it would be his hip. The day after that it would be his back. We were just chasing ghosts, right? And so I remember very clearly that when I wrote this guy's program, my personal uh, favorite tool at that point in time was the foam roller. So this guy got 13 different areas of his body that he had to foam roll before every session. Now, that might be fine if you've got 20 minutes to roll out, but we're running a business and you know you can't have somebody foam rolling for 20 of their 60 minute session. So that was one mistake. Another mistake was a guy named Wade that came into our gym for a while, former professional hockey player, awesome gentleman, but this guy was banged up from his career. And, you know, his hips, especially coming off a hockey career, were just a hot mess. So what we are trying to do for him at this point in time, I'd gotten away from some of the foam rolling, but it's like, okay, we're going to do that. But now we're going to do a bunch of activation stuff. So we were big on activation series. So, I mean, I had every rudimentary or low level hip isolation exercise known to man in this guy's program. And it was too much. But probably the culmination of all this was when Bill and I were really getting into resets. And this kind of coincided with a time where we had a lot of distance clients and a lot of other coaches coming into our gym for training. And I can remember we had a group that came down from Chicago once a month. We had another group that came over from St. Louis once a month. And then Molly Galbraith and some of her friends came up from Lexington every month and we coached then. And when we were first getting into the resets, I remember we would give people like the smorgasbord buffet because we didn't have the sniper approach. It was more of a shotgun approach. And so after a couple months, Molly just says, look, Mike, like I love the programs. I love working with you. But right now, my resets alone take 20 minutes because if I do four to five reps of four to five breaths of four to five exercises, it's just too much. And so that was kind of like the nail in the coffin for this. And it made me realize if your most loyal clients are willing to say something that they feel like you're putting too much stock or emphasis in one thing that you need to fix it. All right. So when you are writing a program, I think the first and foremost thing you need to do is you have to ask yourself, what are you trying to get out of this exercise? right? It's a very simple question, but what do you want to get out of this exercise? And it's a great technique that I use to challenge every one of my coaches, every one of my interns, because I want to get into their thought process. Like, why did you choose this exercise? What do you want to get out of it? And you really start to understand somebody's thought process and the way they think. And, you know, I'll be honest, I had some biases when I was coming up. Number one, for some reason, I thought I could help people move perfectly. I thought there was such a thing as perfect movement. And then I started digging in and I started realizing, man, even the best, let's say squatters in the world. And Ed Cohn is the guy that I always look to because every rep looked the same when Ed Cohn squatted. But the crazy thing, even Ed Cohn would tell you that every rep is just a little bit different. So there's no such thing as perfect movement. Furthermore, you're never going to make somebody symmetrical. Because we know from the inside out, we are asymmetrical. We will not move in a totally symmetrical fashion ever. 
So what does that mean? Does that mean we just, you know, throw our hands up and just forget about moving? Well, absolutely not. But I think what we need to focus on instead of making somebody symmetrical is to focus on managing their asymmetry and help them manage those side to side differences or imbalances that they may have to to work around. But I think ultimately the, the goal of most drills or most resets or breathing exercises, correctives, whatever you want to call it, is to improve movement quality. And I can put that in air quotes because you guys know how I feel about that term. But it's to improve movement quality or to expand movement options. And I think that's a really big take-home point, either improving movement quality or to expand movement options. Because a lot of times when people come to us and they are beat up, they have lost movement variability. They've lost options when it comes to their movement. And we want to restore those movement options. We want to give them more freedom of movement. So ultimately they won't break down and they won't wear out those certain areas. So if you can whittle it down to that, I think it makes your life very, very simple. And it gives you a much clearer idea as to why you want to have those resets or breathing drills or correctives in your program in the first place. So to wrap this point up, resets, correctives, and the like, they can be an absolutely critical piece of the puzzle, but don't let them run the show. Okay, so my second big mistake happened around this same time, maybe a little bit before, but I think it's something that manifested for a long portion of my career. And I think for far too long, I put too big of an emphasis on strength. And if I think back to my early years in the iron game, right? Like I always loved strength training. Now I was growing up, I was a kid that developed a little bit later than most. Um, I was a guy that got into weightlifting probably later than most. And I wasn't like naturally the fastest or the most explosive kid. So when I started strength training, I got a massive carryover. So, you know, continue that on. And when I get into college and I start powerlifting, like now I really see some improvements in my physique, in my athleticism. Like now I'm jumping higher than I ever have. I'm blowing past dudes when I'm playing basketball or I'm jumping over people when I'm playing volleyball and hitting over blocks or hitting around blocks. Like I really felt like, okay, this strength training thing, there's something to it. And I knew I was a power lifter. This is what's crazy. Like I knew I was a power lifter and that I was focused on strength, but I really didn't think I was overly focused on it when it came to my clients and my athletes. And then, you know, when I look back, I realized, man, I really kind of screwed the pooch here (laughs) in more than a a handful of instances. So, you know, I remember when I was in Fort Wayne and I had a handful of personal training clients and there was one guy, he was probably 30, 40 pounds overweight, not the most mobile or supple gentleman on the planet. And he wanted to lose fat. I'm like, dude, I got you. And we can do that as long as your program revolves around squatting, benching and deadlifting. So I made that mistake there. Later on, I was doing combine prep with a kid here in Indianapolis, not combine, but pro day prep, same basic concept. And this dude was strong. I mean, freakishly strong. And we're talking on our trap bar at IFAST, we can get about 600 pounds on it. That's like maxed out. You've got bands around the ends of it, but you can trap bar 600 on it. This kid was 205 and he was trap barring 600 for reps. And keep in mind, like, crushing his tests. Like his vert numbers were going up. His uh, 5.10.5 was sub four. 
Like he was running a 397 at like CFL pro days. Like this guy was crushing it. But in my mind, it's like, oh, he's not strong enough. We can make him stronger. <laughs> I'm like, dude, this is not what this guy needs. Looking back, why was I trying to do that? Or kind of the final example that I have for you is my girl K-Dog. And if you've heard me give my R7 talk or you've heard me talk over the years, K-Dog is one of my favorite athletes of all time. And I remember as I was getting her prep for a soccer year, or a a soccer season when she was in college, I remember we were in the gym and we were like crushing squats. And I'm like, man, this girl's as strong as she's ever been. She's fit. But why before she goes to camp, am I having her grind out slow, like painfully slow reps? And that just, uh, that image is burned in my brain. And I just think, why was I doing that? Why did I put such an emphasis on strength? So when we talk about strength, It's so easy for us as strength and conditioning coaches to get caught up in this mindset or this mantra that that more strength is better, right? And part of this is due in part to the fact that how do we determine if we're successful? Like if we want to get really like big picture and almost philosophical, like how do we know as strength and conditioning coaches if we're doing a good job? We don't. There's, there's really very few ways to determine in a black or white fashion that we're doing a good job or not. And you couple that with the fact that measuring strength is incredibly easy to do and we can hang our hat on it and we can show an objective number to a coach or a, you know, a general manager or whoever and say, oh, look, you know, Johnny was trap barring 405 at the start of the offseason. Now he's trap barring 455. So obviously he's a better athlete, right? Like that that analogy or that kind of process makes sense to a lot of people. But we also know that strength is only valuable up to a point. And a lot of times when we go past that point, it's not the point of no return, but it's definitely a point of diminishing returns. So we have to remember that strength training is just one tool in our toolbox. And and really you're doing it for one of two reasons and they kind of go hand in hand. Number one, we use it, especially early on in an athlete's career to increase force production right? We want to give them more juice. And this is very important for our underpowered athletes. You know, you got those scale, scale, those skinny, frail, or kind of weak kids, or, you know, some of our females that like go into a cut and just keep going. They never come back out. Like strength training is huge for them to increase force output. And another way to think about it is it's used to desensitize the nervous system, right? Because strength training is a stressor. And your body has this natural tendency as the weight gets heavy to shut down. Say, no, I don't want to do this because I could get hurt. And so over time, you slowly desensitize the nervous system. And now your body isn't afraid because it doesn't think it's going to explode every time you lift something heavy. However, I got way too caught up in it. And if you're listening to this, maybe you're in that same boat. Don't be like Mike, right? Don't be like me. Let's be honest. I didn't focus on the real task at hand. It's not just about strength for strength's sake. It's about making a better athlete. It's about making our athletes faster, stronger, or more explosive on the pitch, on the court, on the field, not necessarily what it says on the record board in the weight room. So this is something we have to remember that strength is valuable up to a point. And strength is a very viable tool that we have in our toolbox, but it's not the only tool. So if I can kind of bring this point back together, you know, look, the only athlete where pure strength really matters is power lifters and maybe Olympic lifters to a degree and maybe strongmen. But if you're not a power lifter, 
you don't get paid to squat, bench, and deadlift the most possible weight. Otherwise, you got to look at strength training as a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. So at some point, when you think that athlete's getting close to this point of, you know, how strong do they really need to be to be successful on the, on the field quarter pitch? That's when it's time to start looking at alternative means and alternative strategies to help your athletes really take their game to the next level. All right, mistake number three was that I put little or no focus on conditioning early in my programs. So if you go back to 2000 to 2005, my only goal in life was to get as strong as humanly possible. I was obsessed with powerlifting. And in case you haven't noticed, you don't need to be the best conditioned bro or broette on the planet to be a good powerlifter. And this kind of coincided with the fact that I love biomechanics, I love learning about human movement, but I just didn't love physiology to the same degree. Just as a whole, didn't enjoy physiology, felt like I had to work a lot harder to understand it. So I kind of neglected it. I didn't really put a big emphasis on my own conditioning, on the conditioning of the clients or athletes that I worked with unless they asked for it. And chances are it was always going to be influenced by the fat loss industry, which we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. So if we come back to 08, 09, Bill and I open eye fast, and we get a guy who's a mixed martial artist. He comes in, his name's Dan New, and this guy was very fit, very fit. And so my thought process for him was, oh, well, his work to rest in a cage fighting match is five to one. So he needs glycolytics. And I crushed this guy with glycolytics. And Bill was like, eh, I want you to read this book and we'll get to the book here in just a minute too. So I made that mistake with Dan. Then when I had K-Dog early in her career, this poor girl, I don't know why she still comes into my gym when I think about, you know, all of the mistakes that I made training her over the years. But, you know, when it came to K-Dog, same thing. She was always like, I'm not fit. You know, I can play for like 15, 20 minutes and then I'm gassed out. Okay. And it wasn't until we had an intern come into our gym. He was our second ever intern. His name was TJ Lynch. And Bill had just read Joel's Ultimate MMA Conditioning book. He's like, man, I'm going to do something totally different with this guy's program. And I remember TJ lifted on Mondays and Fridays. On Wednesdays, he did repeated sled sprints. And I mean, he did other stuff on off days like cardiac output and that sort of thing. I don't remember the whole template. But I just remember at the end of the summer... TJ was doing sled sprints and TJ did six seconds on 30 seconds off to help get him ready for training camp. He was a college level football player. And this guy did 50 consecutive sled sprints with six seconds on 30 seconds off and never crossed anaerobic threshold. And I just said, okay, look, dude, I'm in, what do I need to learn? And so, you know, the first point that we need to understand is conditioning for sport is not the same as conditioning for fat loss, right? Or what is best for fat loss. And I would use the term best very loosely because I think too often we get focused on that short-term effect and getting the most out of this short-term window without thinking about the long-term ramifications or if the training that we're doing is sustainable over the long-term. But again, you know, the conditioning world has been massively influenced by the fat loss industry. And let's be honest, Glycolytics and high-intensity interval training don't necessarily make better athletes. And if it does, it's part of a holistic, long-term program. It's not the first thing that we jump in with. If the first time somebody walks in your gym and they want to get in better shape or they want to shed body fat or they want to 
you know, improve their conditioning. If you put them on an airdyne bike for 30 seconds on, 90 seconds off, you're doing them a disservice. And I can say that with complete honesty and complete humility because I did it. (laughs) Trust me, I did it. When we opened the gym, we had an airdyne bike, like 20 or sorry, we bought it for 200 bucks. It was gold. We bought it off Craigslist and we had that thing for probably five years. But everybody did 30 on, 90 off. And I sold people on that. I made it sound so benign, so easy, and it smashed people. Okay? So when we talk about conditioning and writing better conditioning programs, you can have it all. You can have that robust aerobic engine. You can have that high-intensity glycolytic you know, fuel there if you need to tap into it. But you got to start with that aerobic energy system base. You have to think about that long-duration, low-intensity base first. And here's the thing that really started to impact me the longer I did this is I saw such great results with my athletes. And then I took a step back and I thought, you know, why the hell am I not doing this with my gin pop clients? You know, they're deconditioned, right? They don't manage stress well. They are glycolytic all the time or super sympathetic all the time. Why am I not doing this stuff with them? And that's when things really started to change for me. And I feel like we really started to get just great long-term results with our clients and with our athletes. So I'm just going to say this. I get nothing for saying this. If you haven't read Joel Jameson's Ultimate MMA Conditioning book, it's probably 30 or 40 bucks. Go buy it right now. It will absolutely change the way you think about conditioning. And I tell you what, I've done like podcasts, I've done videos, I've done articles about the most popular books or the most impactful books that I've ever read. Joel's book is absolutely in the top five, if not number one. It's that good. And I mean, he's got books, he's got videos, he's got a certification. But if you don't understand conditioning, that's fine. It's it's okay. But be humble about it. Be, you know, set your ego aside and just say, it's okay. I don't know it yet. And I'm going to learn about it. So in summary, don't be like me. Take the time early on to understand conditioning and to apply it properly into your programs because I don't care what demographic you work with, the better you understand conditioning, the better results you can get for any client or any athlete that you work with. Okay, for the fourth and final mistake I want to share with you here today, it is trying to coach like someone else. So again, I go back to the start of my coaching career in 2000. And if you look back at the people I was around at that point in time, there were a lot of really big personalities. So we had our guy, Wade Russell, who was just a huge human being. He was like 6'4", probably 240, 250. I think he played in the NFL at one point in time. Huge guy. Also just a big personality. He was the first strength and conditioning coach ever at Ball State. So, you know, we had him. We had a guy named Justin Cecil, who, you know, was a you know, just a little powerhouse type dude that was, I think, second at collegiate nationals in powerlifting a couple times over. So he was a strong guy. But then some names you might realize, Matt Winning was a strength coach there when I was a strength coach there. I believe her name is Julia Anno now. I always know knew her as Julia Leduski, who again, big time powerlifter, has you know created fitness info products and all kinds of stuff. There was a lot of big personalities around. And while I may come across as a big personality now, part of that is uh, inflated to crank up for video or audio or whatever. I'm generally a little bit more quiet and reserved type guy. 
But, you know, if I was going to stand out at that point in time, I had to, you know, be a little bit louder, a little bit more bold, a little bit more braggadocious. So, you know, it took me a little while, but I also started to realize like, look, like this isn't me. And I came to this realization that ultimately people see through you if you're not being you or if you're not being real to yourself, if you're not being authentic. So luckily when I got out of that space and I kind of just had an opportunity to grow into my own coach's skin, if there is such a thing, I think every coach, you know, when they're around a certain demographic and they get started, they have a tendency to take on kind of the coaching vibe of that demographic. And once you get out and you get into your own space, that's when you can really become your own coach. You can hone your own philosophy. So when it comes down to it, I think one of the hardest parts of coaching is using your mentor as an influence for technical knowledge, but not directly mimicking them as a coach. Because look, every person that mentors you along the way that's been successful has done so you know, in some form or fashion, being their own authentic self. So it's great if you can pull technical information from them or you can get feedback from them, but don't try and become a carbon copy of that person because it never works. So when you're doing like a self-audit or a self-analysis, you absolutely have to find the ways that make you unique and leverage that to your advantage. So maybe it's your intellect. Maybe you're just like a total bookworm and you want to read everything about training and you want to know all of the things. Great. Use that. Maybe it's your sense of humor. A lot of people are just funny and, you know, therefore their humor and their wit make people want to train with them. Maybe it's charm. Some people are just charming and you enjoy being around them. Maybe it's empathy, right? And empathy is a really big one. It's the thing that I used when I got out on my own because number one, I was in a rehab setting. So a lot of these people had stuff going on outside of just physical pain, right? They had things going on at home. They had social issues. They had anxiety issues. So empathy was my secret sauce. And once I started to realize like this is something that I can use to forge a connection and forge a relationship, that allowed me a lot of wiggle room and it gave me a lot of rapport. And this is before people were talking about rapport and culture and communication and all that. Like I kind of like blindly fell into this because let's be honest, I, I wasn't a great coach three to five years in. Nobody's a great coach three to five years in. Some are better than others, but my empathy allowed me enough time to make those mistakes for people to stay around and for me to continue to grow and to evolve and to learn as a result of that. So you have to figure out what is your secret sauce? What is one thing that makes you stand out as a coach and find a way to leverage that? Because look, you are a unique person. You're not a carbon copy. You're not a Xerox copy of anybody. So if you're a unique person, it only makes sense that you need to find a way to become a unique coach as well. You've got to take that individuality. You have to leverage it and you've got to use it. Because you are the only you out there. And the sooner you realize the fact that, you know, it's way easier to be an authentic you than an inauthentic somebody else, the easier it's going to be for you to see real success when it comes to working with your clients and athletes. All right. So to recap, the four biggest mistakes that I made when it came to coaching my clients, writing programs and order. Number one, 
I put too big of an emphasis on resets and correctives. Are they a valuable tool in the toolbox? Yes, absolutely. But remember, what are they there for? Either number one, to improve movement quality, or number two, to restore movement variability. They shouldn't be the be-all, end-all of your program. Number two, I put too big of an emphasis on strength. Again, is strength a valuable tool? Yes. Can it do a lot of good things for us, like make us stronger, faster, more powerful? Yes. But it's not the only tool. And over time, we can absolutely see a diminishing return or or, or a smaller return on our investment. So you have to find a way to say, okay, enough is enough. Now it's time to focus on other physical qualities. Number three, I put little or no emphasis on conditioning. Again, don't be like Mike. If you're early in your career, make it a point. Right now, today, start learning about conditioning. If you've been doing this 10, 15, 20 years and you don't know enough, that's okay. It took me a long time too. Take the time to learn more about conditioning. Use the great resources that are out there, preferably by Joel Jameson as a start. Again, I just think the world of him. He's so knowledgeable in that area and he made such a profound impact on me. I know he can do the same for you. So put an emphasis on conditioning. Gin pop, rehab, high-level athletes, it doesn't matter. Everybody can benefit from a smart conditioning program. And number four, be authentic to yourself. I tried to coach like other people. I wasn't authentic to myself. I hadn't grown into my own coach's skin yet. So the earlier you can be comfortable with yourself as a coach and you can find what your secret sauce is or your superpower as a coach, the more likely or the faster that you're going to be truly successful. So my friend, I really hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, take a minute, share it with a friend, a family member, a loved one, a fellow coach, a fellow trainer, a fellow athlete. If somebody would benefit from hearing my message and you could share it with them, I would truly appreciate it. So my friend, we're in trying times. I really hope you're doing well, you're safe, you're happy, you're healthy. As always, you know, I love and appreciate you. Thank you so much for your support. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.